If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we've got a lecture on MI9 that Helen Fry delivered as part of our virtual lecture series. Helen has written a new book on the history of the Secret Service, and here she speaks about some of their missions to rescue Allied prisoners of war during World War II. Thank you. Thanks for the warm welcome. Well, I hope uh, you'll enjoy some of the anecdotes and part of this history that I'm going to share with you on MI9. Uh, Many of you have probably heard of MI9, some of you may not. And there are times when I give talks and they say, MI9? And and I often joke and say, yeah, well, it's six upside down. But of course, um, being serious about MI9, its role within, it was a branch of military intelligence that was established in December 1939. And MI9's role, its brief, was to gain intelligence from prisoners of war. And very early on in the MI9 diary, it it says that one of our most important sources of intelligence could be your prisoners. Now, that can be enemy prisoners of war. I, I wrote a book called The Walls Have Ears. And MI9, before it became too large and split into MI9 and MI19, was also involved in gaining intelligence from German and Italian prisoners of war by bugging their conversations. Now, the branch of military intelligence of MI9 that I'm talking about this evening are our prisoners of war, because we also realised that we couldn't abandon our prisoners of war. Now, MI9 was founded in December 39, originally in the war office in the old Metropole building. And the following autumn, you might say, well, I don't know if it's a bit of luck. Certainly the head of MI9, Norman Crockett, thought it was a good excuse when the bomb fell on the corner of the Metropole building that he could move his headquarters somewhere else, somewhere out of prying eyes, because he was quite an unorthodox chap. And you can see him again in another rare photograph of him at his desk. And that is actually taken at Wilson Park. So October 1940, he moved MI9 headquarters out to Wilton Park, which is at Beaconsfield. It's now uh, being redeveloped, as a lot of these former uh, MOD sites are. But some of you may remember or have visited when it was an army languages and and education uh, centre. So this was where MI9 headquarters functioned from October 1940 right until the end of the war, discreetly hidden in the trees there. And Norman Crockett, you could argue that he was the right kind of brigadier to head MI9 because it was all about the philosophy behind MI9. And he coined the phrase escape-mindedness, which is interesting. And I'd not read that before in in stuff that I'd read on MI9, but he realised that prisoners could be 
disorientated. So we're talking about Allied prisoners, our uh, guys behind enemy lines who needed to evade capture if they were uh, if they bailed out, for example, if airmen had bailed out, or as I will talk about shortly after Dunkirk, if some of the soldiers were trapped behind enemy lines, commandos on special commando raids, any personnel trapped behind enemy lines may need support. And it was a mandate from MI9 that do not be captured. And that seems quite obvious, but it was instilled into personnel before they went into action that they must do absolutely everything possible uh, to evade capture and, if necessary, go into hiding uh, and those that ended up in prisoner of war camps were encouraged to escape. And so Norman Crockett realised that you had to train men, we're talking about men in action at this point, uh, in this um, techniques of escape and evasion. And he realised that personnel might need a bit of help, um, not only in um thinking about ways to escape, but also they might need gadgets. And of course, these are the kind of things which we know have been immortalised in a lot of the Ian Fleming uh, novels. Well, I kind of it's been a bit developed beyond that now, hasn't it, in the, in the most recent James Bond stuff. But what I find extraordinary, when I started on MI9 history generally over a decade ago, I suddenly started reading this stuff in the files and quite naively, of course, I thought Fleming had been brilliant <laughs> and he'd invented this stuff. But suddenly you find it all in the MI9 files. And of course, he was basically um, developing what had been um, developed during the wartime. Um, and I love this. It's probably one of my favourite photographs from Phil Froome's private collection. This is Christopher Clayton Hutton, and I mentioned him at the very, very beginning. The War Office, uh, or MI9, wanted to develop gadgets. They needed someone with a particular kind of creative thinking. And Clayton Hutton had gone for an interview and he came before the War Office and one, one of the questions he was asked, you can read about this a bit more in his book, it's about his recruitment, um, tell us about yourself. And he said something very interesting. He said, well, I'm the kind of guy that's always been interested in uh, escape stories and escapology and in particular Houdini <laughs> and he he met Houdini and he himself challenged Houdini and of course at that point it's kind of instant this is not the answer that MI9 was expecting that he's going to be perfect and so Christopher Clayton Cutton was given the task a little bit obscure as to how much he actually created and invented himself but he certainly invented some of the or the ideas he would give to some of our local companies and some as far as the north of england or all over wherever he could get uh, companies to to design stuff for him uh, then he would and also to procure stuff to send out and with that he was later helped by charles Fraser Smith. And Clayton Hutton found himself in a situation, he said, when he was first taken on early 1940. Uh, he was given an army uniform that he was told he didn't have to wear. He was to make escape gadgets for prisoners which didn't exist. He said it was the most bizarre situation. Of course, that was about 
to change. And when they eventually moved out to Wilson Park, it was perfect because they stuck him in, well, it's called a bunker. I don't know if it's a real bunker, but he was sort of in a field, maybe in a shed, completely away from prying eyes to sort of experiment. One of the things he designed, as you can see there in this photograph, was the escape route. And there were over 7,000 of these uh, made in the wartime. And you can probably just make out there that the boot, it, you know, it unclips and you can actually um, turn it into a civilian shoe. Because, of course, if you're evading capture, the last thing you want to be doing, if you've got if you've got civilian clothes from a local farm or whatever, is to be walking around in an airman's boots because it's a dead giveaway. Reminds me, actually, of, a, of an example that was given in the MI9 training because I mentioned that MI9 <clears throat> gave personnel training, three weeks training before they went into action in aspects of escape and evasion, most particularly uh, not only how to avoid being captured, but how to um, blend into the background of the country that you're in. Uh, I write primarily about Western Europe, although I've got stuff on the Far East, much, much harder in the Far East. But in Western Europe, there's, a, there's an example given in the training lectures. And it's a real story of an airman that actually managed to escape. And he cycled, astonishingly, 400 kilometres across Nazi-occupied Europe. Fantastic until he came to a roundabout <laughs> you can probably guess what's coming <laughs> he went round the roundabout the wrong way and there was a policeman on the corner thought hang on a minute what's you know and of course he got picked up so it was tiny things like that and MI9 was also keen that in the moments after capture, personnel could be disorientated and they might not think logically. So I had lots and lots of fun reading some of those training manuals and some of the stuff that, that they advised, uh, you know, how to walk, you know, not to walk in a British way and things like that. It's, it's just tickles you pink, really. But back to the gadgets. So the personnel have had their training, but if they're captured and they're in prisoner of war camps, they're going to need a little bit of help. You can see there one of the most famous were the miniature compasses. And over 1.3 million of these were made throughout the wartime. And every personnel had a button with a compass hidden behind and it would unscrew some of you probably know this already but it would unscrew counterintuitively to the way you would normally screw things and therefore the Germans didn't you know thought the Germans wouldn't discover this and so Clayton Hutton's role was really to be able to smuggle useful things like this hacksaws uh, jiggly saws the miniature compasses, anything that could help prisoners to escape and evade into prisoner of war camps, but in ordinary everyday objects so they wouldn't be found. Of course, we've got another example there with a shaving brush. And you can just see uh, open there with the miniature compass hidden in it. And of course, as long as the German guards didn't take away a prisoner's shaving kit, he always had a compass with him. Um, prisoners were allowed, of course, to have leisure activities, and MI9 took advantage of that. They created sort of fictitious companies or charities, 
you know, the Victualers Association of whatever, or the Ladies Knitting Society. I mean, I'm kind of making this up, but there were tons and tons of these. And they were very charitable, of course, but they were completely bogus. And these charities would send parcels and gifts into the prisoner of war camps and one of them was the monopoly set very very famously and i'm told that if you've got one of these original monopoly sets they're now incredibly valuable one of the mi9 original sets i i guess after this lecture it won't be questions you'll all be diving into your attics or under stair cupboards to see if you've got um, an original one but those pieces, things could be hidden uh, in the Monopoly uh, board or the pieces. Uh, a dot would indicate after one of those, like after Mayfair, there'd be a little dot. And that would indicate to the prisoners that this was an escape and evasion version, for example, of the Monopoly board. So Waddington's was actually brought on board in a number of games, including chess sets and all sorts of things used to smuggle items in. And one of the most important, of course, were the MI9 maps, originally printed on silk. Later, after the Americans entered the war, we were able to use rayon, which is similar to nylon. Uh, the tissue maps, which I try and remember to come back to in a moment. But what I find incredible about these maps is the detail and the quality. And Christopher Clayton Hutton made sure that well, all sorts of experiments went on. But of course, you had to make sure that this wasn't blurred. They were double printed, printed on each side. And for me, the, the detail and the level without the lines being blurred is quite incredible. Technology 80 years ago. And it's just like something that's been printed on paper. But of course, if you print an ordinary, well, if you carry an ordinary map, it rustles, it's quite big. And so Clayton Hutton designed these or procured Bartholomew's uh, to print these. And they were done for the, all aspects of the war, Western Europe. There are maps which survived for the Far East, for Greece, for Norway, um, quite incredible. Uh, but also he hit on the idea of the tissue maps. Because, of course, if silk was in short supply, if the supply lines were cut off, and if I'm not mistaken, some of that came from parts of the Middle East, then during the wartime, if you lost your supply of silk, and silk was needed for parachutes as well, then you had to have an alternative. And the tissue mats are just so, so, we'll call it paper thin. But the printing was, again, incredibly detailed, but it could fold up much, much smaller. And I'm told that it would even fit. I haven't seen this, but I'm sure it's true. It would even fit inside one of those Monopoly pieces. But of course, MI9's work, and I'm going to go on to the escape lines now, couldn't have succeeded without the escape lines, the Bidasoa River there in the Pyrenees. There were a number of key escape lines, and I'm talking about the MI9 escape lines. Some of you may have heard of Claude Dancy. Claude Dancy became the deputy head of MI6 in the wartime, quite a controversial figure. Um, people, people have their opinions on whether they like him or not. He's, he had a wonderful quote, actually, uh, every man has his price and every woman is seducible. 
well, I'm not quite sure if that's true or not, but I'll leave you to decide whether you agree with him. But he was in charge of the SIS slash MI6 escape lines, but he was also put in charge of the MI9 escape lines because he wanted to ensure, MI6 wanted to ensure that their, its work was not compromised by other escape lines, particularly by SOE, Special Operations Executive. So very important that MI9's operations and MI6 did not overlap and compromise. And of course, if one went down, the other could go down. So Dancy was in charge of both, so he could kind of see what's going on. And he, it's interesting that he is not in any of the MI, he's not named in any of the MI9 files, but he's instrumental in some of the early meetings to establish the escape lines for MI9. And the three very most well known are the PAT line, and that ran from Marseille. Uh, down into to the Pyrenees, into Spain. Originally, uh, they came out by Portugal, but not for long, and then ultimately through Gibraltar. Gibraltar became the main point. And I mentioned Donald Darling, who'd written a book on this. He was based uh, in Gibraltar, getting airmen and soldiers out from there. So there's the PAT line, which began in um, Marseille. Uh, Ian Garrow was instrumental in establishing that and also when he I mean when he was arrested it was taken over by Pat O'Leary um, and he's hence the Pat line. Got a very interesting story which I don't have time to share with you at the moment about the American Varian Fry who was in Marseille uh, rescuing a list on his list of 200 Jews. Eleanor Roosevelt wanted him to rescue 200 prominent Jews who were thought to be in hiding in Marseille. And he ends up helping British intelligence as well. So you can read something of the secret escape lines of which we were smuggling Jews out of escape lines, but also uh, airmen and soldiers. And that line was particularly important after Dunkirk. So May, June, 1940, we often think of that as being really, and it was a really successful evacuation of around 300,000 Allied personnel from those beaches and little fishing uh, vessels that bring them back to Britain. But I'm not sure how many people are aware that 50,000 of our fighting forces were left behind. Uh, many of them were fighting to sort of hold back the German forces to enable that evacuation. And eventually 50,000 went into, became prisoners of war. And as a result of MI9's legacy and work across the war, all but 300 of those, according to the MI9 files, only 300 of those didn't make it back during the wartime. Incredible. But 5,000 were also trapped behind enemy lines, not taken into prisoner of war camps, and they made their way south. This, another famous line was the Comet Line. Uh, here you can see Dede de Jong. Uh, she was instrumental in establishing the Comet Line from, well, she was technically, I was told, it wasn't uh, established in Brussels, and I'll, I'll come to that. She was Belgian, a nurse, took her inspiration from Edith Cavell, the British nurse in World War I, 
And she was nursing some of those soldiers after Dunkirk and they were missing their families. They were quite traumatised and she promised to help them. She said, I'll help you get back home. And that's how, in a sense, in her mind, she began to think about rescuing uh, soldiers with the help of her father, Frederick. Uh, de Jong from Brussels and the Comet Line functioned throughout the wartime. Deddy was ultimately betrayed uh, in early 1943. The Comet Line did survive the war in spite of being decimated and it is incredible, something I do find incredible, is that that network of the Comet Line smuggled uh, soldiers and later airmen of course through Paris right under the noses of the Nazis, <laughs> um, uh, on and trains often by train, down to the Pyrenees, and the Comet Line would come out on the other side of the Pyrenees into Bilboa, San Sebastian, and again, there they were met. At Michael Creswell, he was known as Monday, that was his code name. He often, well, he would escort them then, uh, and then down into Gibraltar. But in the summer of 1941, and there's some very rare photographs that have come to light from the de Grief family. De Grief family were Belgian, and they'd fled Brussels in 1940, and they were living along the Pyrenees. And Dede uh, came down, and another chap with her, Andre Dupre, came down to the Pyrenees, and with the de Grief family, they established the Comet Lines. The Comet Line is said to have been established not actually in Brussels itself, um, but in the Pyrenees there. And a wonderful photograph there of the degree family in their home along the Pyrenees, Villa de Voisin. And there they are, um, well, basically planning and organising that end of the comet line. And so they were instrumental in finding safe houses, um, guides to take the airmen and soldiers over the mountains, Elvire de Grief, she was quite a character and would, would blackmail some of the local officials if there was any chance of being compromised, arranged for various personnel to be broken out of prison. Quite a feisty woman. And she, fortunately, she survived and ran that end of the comet line right until the end of the war. There you see a photograph of Pat O'Leary uh, with his medals from the Pat line. And then, of course, the other... Main line were the sea evacuations. I mean, there were others, but the sea evacuations, I love the fact that they ran from Brittany into Cornwall. So there's a very strong Cornish uh, aspect to this story as well. Yeah, this just gives you, I'm not sure that this really gives us an idea of the challenging terrain. It's quite difficult to find a photograph which gives us an idea of the challenge that faced the guides and certainly Dede when she escorted André de Jong, Dede, when she escorted uh, her parcels, as they were known, over the Pyrenees. Florentino was another very well-known guide in this story. And of course, they couldn't use obvious routes out of the Pyrenees. They would often use quite obscure donkey trails or had to find new routes. And it's extraordinary too that they did this all through the year, even when there was heavy snow on the ground. Now we've got to have some glamorous spies as well, which we've got. One of the stories I uncovered, and you can read in more detail, 
is about this lady here, Renata Fascicani della Torre. She lived in Milan. She was from an aristocratic family, just 21 years old, from Via Goldoni, where she, from their home, the family apartment, she ran an intelligence station, Stazion Goldoni, and from there she smuggled or helped to smuggle with a chap called Fritz Molden. Uh, you can read his story. He was an Austrian deeply involved with British intelligence and American, actually, American intelligence. And there was just one route out through from northern Italy. Italy was very, very tricky. Uh, she was an expert skier, of course, <laughs> almost Olympic standard from what I gather. And she would escort soldiers out into neutral Switzerland, uh, her, working also with Dulles, the founder of what later, of course, became the CIA. So they had a very interesting uh, network there, also smuggling intelligence to the Allies. And the handsome fellow in the corner there, uh, Sam Derry, you may not know his story, but again, this is shining a light on his work in Italy. He was a prisoner of war in Camp 21, Kaiti. And at one point, Norman Crockett issued the very controversial order uh, when Italy and Mussolini was falling and the German forces were moving up. He issued the very controversial order to stay put, that prisoners were to stay put in the prison, uh, sorry, in the camps, because if they just dispersed into the countryside, there was no real network to look after them, to feed them, to clothe them, to keep them safe. And, and his priority was actually to keep them safe. But it sort of backfired with Italy. And Sam Derry, who headed the escape committee in Kaiti, was, decided he wasn't going to save his own skin and escape. He got at least 50 men out before the Germans came and, and basically the, guard, the Italian guards just fled. And the Germans started to move the prisoners to Germany, potentially, it was thought, to concentration camp. And Derry, I think, he's the, the real James Bond because he literally drum, jumps off a train in broad daylight, lands on the bank, shots firing at him, train going at goodness knows how many miles an hour, uh, and he survives. And a month or two in hiding and in a local farmhouse, he finally makes it down to Rome. And essentially, he ends up running an escape line with um, Catholic priest Hugh O'Flaherty. And together, they uh, run the Rome Escape Organization. And they're responsible for saving just over 4,000 Allied airmen. Quite incredible. And at one point, he's at risk, uh, Sam Derry's at risk of betrayal. And he smuggles into where other than the Vatican. So you can read some of the stuff I've uncovered about the so-called neutral Vatican. Absolutely fascinating subject and one which to bear in mind that the Vatican archives, which have now just been released for the Second World War, had not been released when I was writing the book. So I'm hoping there's nothing drastic in those archives um, for what I'm actually saying in the book. But the financial aid and channels of the Vatican, fascinating in helping MI9. 
Sam Derry would then later go on to head MI9 when Crockett retired. And so towards the end of the war, very end of the war, Sam Derry heads MI9. And in the post-war period, he goes on to found the territorial SAS. So fascinating chap in his own right. I'll come to Airy Neve, of course, the first British officer to successfully escape to, from Colditz and return to Britain. He wasn't the first to escape, but he was the first to escape and successfully return to Britain. He said that the risks were not taken by, and it's true, were not taken by MI9 in London. The risks were taken, as he put it, in Paris, in Marseille, in Brussels. And for me, it was incredibly, incredibly moving part of writing the book was uncovering more of the stories of the helpers. You have their, yeah, Count Georges d'Autremont. He ends up at the very end of the war uh, serving in the Belgian SAS. Um, very, very courageous. Um, I won't go into his story now. You can read about him. Nemo, Albert Grindel, he actually takes over the comet line when Dede de Jong is actually arrested and ends up spending nearly three years in a concentration camp. She does survive. And Michu, Michu, who ends up saving the comet line in 1944 when everything's going down around them. And one of the most moving stories for me was being able to interview Elsie Marshall. She's in her late 90s, and I was very lucky to go and visit her. She lives just south of Brussels. And in 1942, the famous Marshall affair, November 42, when the Marshall family were betrayed, um, Frederick de Jong here, Dede's father, survives a bit longer. But ultimately, and this is something I still struggle to understand, um, this decimation, a betrayal of the escape lines, I suppose they were always vulnerable to penetration and um, betrayal. If you think about the vast areas that they operated in, I suppose it's not surprising that there were points at which, but they were incredibly vulnerable. And one story in particular you may have heard of Harold Cole, who betrayed the line, partly it's believed for money. He's a bit of a, an elusive character, but he ends up working for a short time as a double agent for the Abwehr. And he does the terrible, terrible crime because he's trusted. Originally, he worked for MI9. And he was turned by the Abwehr. And originally, he was trusted for saving a lot of airmen and soldiers. But he does the terrible thing of bringing bogus airmen into the homes of the helpers. And as a result of the Marshall affair, where the Marshall family were betrayed, after that, a hundred, at least a hundred of the Comet line were arrested and many of them just did not survive. Frederick uh, de Jong was actually shot in 1943. Uh, Dede, as I said, survived. Elsie Marshall's father did not survive. Elsie herself, incredible story, was just 16 years old and still at school when she helped the Allies. And I said to her, why did you do it? 
And it was a very moving reply. She had that spirit of defiance and she's 97 and you just see in her eyes that same spirit of defiance. And she said they were taking away our food. They were taking away our coal on trains to Germany. We had nothing. But most importantly, they took away our friends, our Jewish friends. And she said, out with the Nazis. <laughs> and it was just that same force, she said, the fight for freedom everywhere had to go on. And that sacrifice, because look, she witnessed people being shot. She knew the consequences of working for MI9. Well, I say working for MI9. One thing I learned from her, she said, we never knew the name of MI9. We just worked for the line. And so now you get a picture of helpers right across, I'm talking just now Western Europe, right across who are prepared to sacrifice their lives, yes, ultimately for freedom, but for an organisation whose name they did not know until after the war. I think it is really, really inspirational. Aha, uh -huh, yes, we can't, we can't have a... a Talk about MI9 without Escape from Cold. It's probably one of, apart from Stalag Luft 3, where they tunnel out in The Great Escape, as of The Great Escape film, Escape from Cold has also got to be one of the most famous of the escape scenarios. And it was thought to be impenetrable. It was thought by the Nazis, you could not escape built on bedrock. And there you see a wonderful photograph of Airy Nee, who, as I said, becomes, with a Dutch officer, becomes the first um, British officer to escape from Colditz. And his story is well known, but you can read some of the colour of that again in my book. And how did he do it? Of course, you walk out in German uniform. <laughs> you think, well, hang on a minute, how did he do that? Of course, they made, he made his own uniform in the camp and it took eight weeks to make his uniform. And in training, MI9 had said to personnel, if you get captured and you're in a prisoner of war camp, if it moves, I love this slogan, if it moves, nick it. <laughs> so if you read the original Colditz file in the National Archives, and some of that I've woven into my book, um, you can see some of the antics that the prisoners got up to. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And if they were digging tunnels or working on some kind of escape plan, if they're missing, because they had to work at night quite often, uh, how did you, you know, if you suddenly had a guard peeping into the room, how did you, you know, cover the guy who wasn't in his bed? Well, they thought of that. <laughs> pillows. Yeah, that's obvious. Pillows for the body. Uh, pumpkins for the head. And they painted... <laughs> 
the faces. You think this is just incredible from the theatre kit because they were allowed to have plays and theatres and that kind of thing. Um, and, and the Germans gave them all sorts of props to keep them happy. But of course, what about the hair? Well, they used hair from the barber's room in the camp. And I just think this kind of ingenuity, because MI9, again, it's about philosophy, said to those prisoners, just, just keep busy because they could keep mentally alert, keep their morale up, and they could be incarcerated for two, three years or longer. A photograph of uh, Pat Reed there, the post uh, prisoners of war in Colditz. Of course, he was another famous escape from Colditz. I just want to give you one story from Colditz, actually. When I came to start the book, somebody said to me, oh, I said, I knew um, Major General Brummel. In fact, Brummel's um, uniforms are at the National Army Museum. Uh, he did some kind of escape thing, landed in Colditz. Um, his sister was a cook at Wilton Park, you know, the MI9 site, Wilton Park. A cook? Uh-huh. Well, when I saw her name in MI9 files as the right-hand person to Norman Crockett, I thought, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a cook to me. I just, just love it. Anyway, he said uh, her brother, you know, Tubby Brummel, he was known as, uh, he was in the Royal Engineers. He turns up, he's captured prisoner of war camp, and he ends up in solitary confinement because he said to the commandant, well, you know why they sent me here? Because I'm in the Royal Engineers and I'm an expert on tunnelling. And he said, well, for the insulants, stuck him in solitary confinement for 30 days. But they eventually, uh, the prisoners faked his uniform. Again, this is a fantastic example of the kind of things they did. What did they make the holster for his gun? from chocolate that was sent in the parcels, the MI9 parcels, into the camp. But, of course, it survived for as long as he got to run down the hill and then it started melting. But he was recaptured because of a slight slip-up. And, again, you can read about that in the book. Very quickly to say about Brummel, I couldn't find his escape report amongst the MI9 files. And I went on a trip to America for some related research. It was a family archive. So I'm in a family home in North America. And they've got a huge amount of stuff, primarily on the bugging operation. And there is one, just one escape report. And don't forget, 35,000 Allied personnel made it back. And of those 35,000, there probably aren't escape reports for all of them. There certainly aren't. But in this home was the account of Brummel's escape by Brummel himself. And I thought, what are the chances of that? Okay, so uh, one of the things I do find and unpack in the book is about Room 900. Room 900 is the most secret part of MI9. And I won't give anything away because that wouldn't be fair now. But to say that traditionally, there's always been some kind of blur it's probably the best way of putting it. Nobody really understanding what's the relationship between MI9 and its sort of secret section, Room 900. Room 900 is sending agents behind enemy lines, by the way, also known as IS9, Intelligence School 9. What's the relationship between that and MI6? And I come to some very interesting conclusions on that. And IS9 in 1944 operated in Holland, Never be surprised by what you discover. 
some of the IS9 WEAs for Western Europe, uh, they operated. Holland was particularly difficult because Holland had been the being betrayals, uh, very difficult to set up escape lines. That's one of the few instances where SOE did help. But in 1944, IS-9 Western Europe was involved in an operation called Operation Blackmail, uh, and that was primarily uh, operations into Holland, and they used what was called S-phones to communicate with agents on the ground. Um, they flew under this badge and the badge is supposedly unofficial it wasn't an official we understand mi9 badge and it's my view i love this three witches on broomsticks and it's my view that that has been taken from macbeth from shakespeare toil and trouble for the nazis well other scholars have other ideas on that but i like to think that mi9 is9 has drawn its inspiration from Shakespeare. So just coming to the last part of what I want to say, so we think traditionally of MI9's legacy in escape and evasion, in getting airmen and soldiers, British Commonwealth allied, the Americans had an equivalent of MI9 known as MIS-X, so the Americans were very much involved after Pearl Harbor having their own branch, and so the legacy we think of as very importantly, saving airmen and soldiers. You couldn't train an airman in less than three months, not really. Very, very expensive. And so it was quite unusual. I don't think I haven't come across the Germans having an equivalent of a mandate to get their personnel to escape and evade. So very, very important. So its legacy traditionally has been seen as, as this. But it goes much further. And these are the final comments I really want to say. MI9 and intelligence. Putting aside the intelligence that MI9 slash MI19 gained from the bugged conversations of German prisoners of war, including Hitler's generals, and that I wrote about, as, as you know, Dave's mentioned, in The Walls Have Ears, tons and tons of extraordinary intelligence that alongside Bletchley Park is now being realised as having turned the tide of the war. Uh, it was said as late as February 1945, without Bletchley Park and Trent Park, and you've got Trent Park at Cockfosters, North London, without the bugging operation, RAF Mednam, all this stuff joined together without that, we could have still lost the war because Germany could have lost the tech war. So MI9 is picking up tonnes of intelligence from German prisoners of war, but also from our prisoners, those that come back from behind enemy lines, whether they are agents, whether they are prisoners of war, whether they're allied personnel, whether they're even leaders or members of the escape lines that have to be exfiltrated because they've been betrayed, potentially. They all have vital knowledge and they are debriefed or interrogated, as MI9 said. MI9 used female interrogators fascinating. The right kind of woman, so the MI9 files, the right kind of woman makes as good as an interrogator as a man. At the end of the war also, MI9 did not forget the helpers and really, you know, their inspirational stories, but they'd sacrificed their lives, potentially their freedom. If they'd gone down, that you know, their whole families were at risk. But MI9 rewarded them. Here you have a photograph of Florentino, the emotion clearly on his face, Janine de Grief, 
being awarded here, the Americans and the British awarded medals of varying degrees uh, to the helpers and also compensated financially helpers and guides for the financial outlay during the wartime. And I sort of finish really with uh, Elsie Marshall. She looks as young and youthful like this at 97 uh, as, as she, you know, she looks sort of 70. But she, for me, was transformational in understanding what on the surface was a sort of could be seen as a bureaucratic sort of paper organization, tons and tons of papers of files in the National Archives. But behind MI9, whether it's the MI9 personnel, whether it's the helpers, the guides, the leaders of the escape lines, the intelligence officers, these are the stories of ordinary people who came together in wartime in circumstances which perhaps in other time of life they would never have crossed paths and Elsie uh, worked with uh, Peggy Van Leer who went on to marry Jilly, Jimmy Langley another instrumental figure in MI9 and Room 900's history. Peggy Van Leer said and I end my book with this quote in fact I'm actually going to quote it properly I'm not going to paraphrase it but I'm going to end with her quote because I think for me it sums up everything, really. So Peggy Van Leer, who was exfiltrated down the comet line when she was at risk and came out in a boat of Seville oranges, as you would, smuggled out of, in a boat of oranges. Um, she wrote, the despair, the humiliation, the anger, well, at German occupation, was so deep that one felt ready to do anything to regain the priceless treasure of freedom. And this for me is really important. She says, it is only when one has lost freedom that one realizes it is the most precious thing. That was Helen Fry. You can find out more about our virtual lecture series, including upcoming lectures in which you can put your own questions to the experts at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear Gareth Williams on the history of vaccinations. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.